So I'll ask you if you would to take your Bible and find Revelation chapter number 15. Revelation chapter 15. And we'll make our way through the entire chapter today because it's only uh, eight verses long. So we can do that. We are about two-thirds of the way or uh, close to two-thirds of the way through the book of Revelation. By now that you've noticed uh, an observation that Dr. John Phillips make uh, has made in, about this book, the scene goes back and forth from earth to heaven, heaven to earth, earth to heaven, heaven to earth, and we've seen uh, scenes in heaven have been pretty joyous. Scenes on earth have been pretty horrendous. Today we're going back into a scene that is found in heaven, and these eight verses make up for the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. There's only eight of them, and they reveal how God is preparing for his final judgment on the earth. Those who are living on the planet uh, so far through this book have been enduring hard tribulation, and we've covered some of those things, and terrible things happening not just to the people on the planet, but to the planet itself. God is judging the world literally. So those, uh, those folks who are on the planet during this time, suffering as they have, are about to go into the worst part of the Great Tribulation period. Chapter number 15 talks to us about the bull judgments. Now the King James Bible calls them vials, V-I-A-L-S, we would describe those objects today as bowls. So we are talking about today preparing for the bowl judgment. In this, in this short text, I want to remind you of something that I've, I've been trying to rehearse uh, periodically through this book, and that's the truth of Psalm 19 and verse 9, that the judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Because when you look at the severity of the judgment that's coming to the planet, it really does give us pause. And it's like, God, are you sure about this? He is. Because his judgments are true and they're righteous altogether. So what we get today in Revelation chapter 15 is we get heaven's perspective as the final judgment is being prepared for the world during the tribulation period. Up to this point, God has mingled Mercy with his judgment. He sprinkled grace throughout these seven years. The witnesses have been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The evangelists have been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But now the people of earth has made their final choice and they've chose Satan over God. And so final judgment is coming. I want you to know that there's no more mercy. Revelation 15 no more mercy, no more opportunity, no more long-suffering, no more grace. You'll observe that Revelation chapter 15 begins and ends with this phrase, the wrath of God. He is going to pour out his wrath. And the Bible uses some very descriptive terms that we'll look at here today. I think, will be an, uh, the, I think that will clarify for you just how... Can I say this? Just how fed up God becomes with the sinfulness and the rebellion of mankind. He talks about these bowls being absolutely 100% full 
of God's wrath. Now that ought to make us pause. That, that, ought, to, that ought to get out of sobriety to this look today. Uh, God's wrath is contained in these seven, these seven bowls. So let's look at these eight verses. Let's read the chapter and then pray and ask God to bless his word and then jump into this today. Preparing for the bold judgments. We'll not see the judgments begin today. What we see today is heaven's preparation for this last series of judgments. We've already been through the scroll judgments. We've been through the trumpet judgments. And now we come to the third and final set, these bold judgments. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold... The temple of the tabernacle, (coughs) excuse me, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple having seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let's stop right there and look at this today, preparing for the bold judgments. And before we do, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word, can we? Lord, when we look at these words throughout this book, We do see periods of rejoicing and worship, but most of this book, and maybe that was your intent, sobers us up, and it's somber. And Lord, when we consider people facing the wrath of an omnipotent God, help us to be careful to listen to you today. You said repeatedly in this book that if we have ears, we ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, to our church today, would you speak and show us what we ought to do with this information. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to those today who might be listening online or in this room and they don't know you as Savior. May these words, Lord, draw them to you. May they recognize the truthfulness and the certainty of your coming judgment on this planet. We've never seen anything like it, so a lot of this, God, you know, it's hard for us to imagine how these things are going to take place. But because you said it and you cannot lie, we know that your word is true. So help us to take these words as you intended them. They are your very word of God. They are truth. And may our lives be changed because of what we know in your word. We pray in your name. Amen.
preparing for the bold judgments. How is God going to go about this? John looks and it says right in verse number one, I saw another sign in heaven. So what John is seeing, and keep this in mind, the book of Revelation is a series of visions that John saw as if they were happening. He saw them in, in the form of a vision, and that's what he's seeing here, yet another vision. Divinely inspired, supernatural, absolutely true. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we know that what we're seeing is true. John is seeing these things as though they have already happened and they've not yet occurred. So let's look at these vision, this vision today that he has and notice this in verse 1 and again in verse 7. It is a vision of judgment. The first thing about John's vision here is that it is a vision of judgment. It says in verse number 1 that he sees another sign. Mark that word sign. It's translated in the New Testament vision. It's also in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3 in the book of Revelation, it's translated as the word wonder. But it's the same Greek word. It's an amazing sight that he's seeing, a supernaturally inspired vision. And in this one, he sees seven angels, four beasts, the tabernacle that's in heaven, and seven bowls that contain the entirety of God's wrath. They're full of God's wrath. And John says this vision, verse number one, he says this vision that he sees is great and marvelous. Great and marvelous. Great refers to its rank of importance. He's letting his readers know, you and me, he's letting us know what I see here is very important. It is great in its importance. Do you remember Jesus a lot of times when he was speaking, especially in parables in the Gospels, he'd talk about a great man or he would say this was a great woman. He was talking about usually their influence in their society. They were important people. Here, he uses this word great, and he says it's very important. Then he says it's marvelous. That is, that is astonishing. Astonishing. You and I, really, we have seen few things that are absolutely astonishing. Now, we've seen things that have shocked us, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. But we've not seen things like this. John is saying this was absolutely incredible. It was marvelous. It was astonishing. So he calls our vision to, or he calls our attention rather to this vision because what he's about to say in the next seven verses is important and it's amazing. So it's good for us to know these things. In Revelation chapter 14, we saw some of the horrifying judgments of God as they're visited on earth and we see it from earth's perspective. What we're talking about in chapter 15 now, this is, this is very unique. It's, it's from heaven's perspective. It's a terrible judgment from the perspective of those people who are already in heaven, seeing what's going to come and knowing, what's, knowing where it's headed. God's wrath is headed to earth. Now, how are the people in heaven responding to that? Well, it's a vision here of judgment. And the first thing is, I want you to see under that in verse 1, it's a scene of final judgment. Final judgment. These seven angels, the verse says that they have the seven, what? Last plagues. Don't skip words in the Bible. 
Every word there is important. The Holy Spirit inspired every one of them. He's God saying, here's the final judgments. These are the last seven plagues that are coming. That word plague literally means to hit and cause a wound. God is going to wound the earth with his judgment. Picture these judgments as a whip and God giving out lashes with it. A terrible judgment coming to the planet and they are going to complete the judgments of the tribulation period. We've seen the scroll judgments. We've seen the trumpet judgments. Now the bowl judgments. These are the final judgments. And verse number one says that they fill up the wrath of God. Now let's look at that. Can we look at that phrase again? It says, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. It doesn't say they're filled up with the wrath of God. It says that these judgments fill up the wrath of God. That's an interesting word. That word fill right there, F-I-L-L. Did you know that's the same word that Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross? And he said, it is finished. It's the exact same word. The word means to complete or to execute fully. To to finish. This is going to finish the wrath of God. Same word that Jesus used in John chapter number 19. That word is the word teleo. It's very expressive. It's common throughout the Greek language. When, when In this day, when John's writing this, they understood exactly what they meant. And, and most people that read his book, they would understand so many applications of that word to fill up or to finish. Listen to some of the applications of that word. It was used, first of all, by slaves when they completed a, uh, when they completed an assignment that was given to them by their master. It was used by priests to describe when they had located an animal that was worthy for sacrifice. Their search was finished. It was done. They'd found it. It was used by farmers to describe a perfect specimen that had been born into their flock or herd. It was used by merchants when the final deal was struck and a receipt was given that would often contain this word on it showing that the debt to be collected was finished. It was paid in full. God's wrath is full. His wrath is going to be executed. In fact, one common usage of this word, teleo, one of the common usages is a soldier would say that word when he put his foot on the neck of a defeated enemy. This this was an amazing descriptive word being used. So when these last seven plagues finally are going to be poured out, we're going to see that starting in chapter 16, I want you to know that God's judgment on the world is going to be finished. He's, He's about to wrap things up. These are the last seven plagues, the scripture says. It is a scene of final judgment. It's also a scene of full judgment. Full judgment. These seven bowls are said to be full of the wrath of God. Literally, they're swelling. God's wrath is full now. John is saying that God's wrath has reached its bursting point. We used this illustration before, but up until now, the judgment of God and the wrath of God has been like water that flows over a dam. 
Now the dam's about to give way, and it's going to absolutely burst. Chapter 14 and verse number 10 says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, nothing else but pure wrath. That's what, that's what is coming. I mentioned to you before the flood in 1899 that hit Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And you've heard of that flood before. It was a devastating flood. At that time, Johnstown had about 30,000 people. It was a steel town. And they had about 30,000 people that lived there. And it's located on the Little Connemaw and Stony Creek Rivers. And on May 31st, 1899, at about 4.07 in the afternoon... After a night of extremely heavy rains, that dam burst. Witnesses said that when that 20 million tons of water came crashing down that narrow valley, boiling chunks of debris, they could hear, this is what they said, the people in Johnstown, Pennsylvania could hear that judgment or that flood coming. They could hear that flood coming and knew exactly what it was. But they couldn't escape. By the time the morning, by the time the morning uh, had come, they counted 2,209 people that they knew were missing. The devastation was incredible. This wall of water hit that town. At times, that wall of water was 60 feet high. That's five feet taller than our bell tower out there, if that'll help you. Traveling uh, over 60 miles an hour, it hit that town and ripped it to pieces. That was just interesting to me that those people said everybody knew what had happened. They could hear it coming, and there was nothing they could do to stop that water. It was coming. Did you know they were finding bodies from the Johnstown flood? The last one to be found was in 1912 in Cincinnati. That was a devastating flood that hit that town. I want you to know that that flood that hit Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1899 is just a small sliver of the unavoidable but certain judgment that's coming to this planet. And there's no way to stop it. Can you imagine somebody going out there in Johnstown on that afternoon and trying to figure out how they're going to stop that wall of water? There's no way to do that. Nothing on earth was going to stop that wall of water. Imagine the power of an omnipotent God being turned loose because his wrath is now full, as the scripture says. It is a final judgment. It is a full judgment that's coming. It's terrible. It is John seeing this vision. It's a a vision of judgment, but simultaneously. Now, that sets a terrible scene, doesn't it? Simultaneously, it is a vision of jubilation. A vision of judgment, but also a vision of jubilation. In verse number 2, it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they 
sing. Do you see that? I hope your Bible says that. I hope your Bible says they're singing in heaven on this particular instance. Because this is not only a vision of judgment, it is a vision of jubilation. In fact, if you've noticed, and and you probably have by now, every time we turn to heaven in this book, there is worship and rejoicing in the presence of a holy God. Every time. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, here again in Revelation chapter 15. This vision is no different. While on earth they're preparing, they don't know it yet, but they're preparing to receive the final judgment of God in heaven. The Bible says they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Let's, Let's talk about that jubilation. Because we wouldn't expect for the saints to be rejoicing over this. And I'll say this, I started to say, but they are, but we will be, we're part of that. Now the main course is going to be, we'll see here, the main course is going to be the tribulation saints, but we'll be part of this. Let's look at this. First of all, the setting of this jubilation in the first part of verse number two, it talks about this interesting sea, a sea of glass mingled with fire. That glassy sea points to God's judgment being firm and being set. It's a glass sea. You know, one of the most uh, one of the most uh, constantly changing things on our on our planet are, are the seas and the oceans. Waves just keep coming, and they look tumultuous, and sometimes they're smooth, and sometimes there's these great big waves. Uh, when we go down to the beach, when our family goes down to the beach, I don't know what it is about the beach. When I get there, I turn into like a 15-year-old kid. I want those waves to be big, and I want them to be hard. I, I just have a good time in those waves. So what we do is we, when we get down there, we try to uh, we try to... See, okay, well, the water's hitting really hard right here. So we'll go over there. By the time we get over there, now the waves are hitting over here. And so we go over there, and now they're over here. They're just changing all the time. Those waves are just changing. This sea is not like that. The Bible says that this sea is glass, and these saints are standing on it. This sea is not moving. It is firm. And it is fixed, and it pictures the judgment of God. The saints can stand on this judgment. Remember, it is true and righteous altogether. It says not only a sea of glass, it says it's mingled with fire. Did you see that? Mingled with fire. That just reminds us what Hebrews chapter 12 says, that our God is a consuming fire. Fire is always related to judgment in the scripture. This is God's judgment. Do you remember in the, um, in the Old Testament, outside the temple, they had that brass laver, a great big brass bowl, and um, the priests would go and ceremonially wash in that laver. They'd wash their hands before they would do their service in the priestly ministry that they had outside the tabernacle or the temple. That, that sea or that uh, that laver, rather, uh, once or twice in the Old Testament, it's called the Sea of Brass. Remember that? This is not the Sea of Brass. This is not a place, this, this, uh, this is a Sea of Glass. 
They would go there for ceremonial cleansing and, for, and, and ceremonial, ceremonially washing away their sins at that laver, at that great big brass bowl. Our brass laver as Christians is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can go to that all the time as Christians. You ought to and I ought to. And God's faithful and just to forgive us. But this sea is not that. This is not a sea of brass. This is a sea of glass. There's no more cleansing taking place. Remember what I said earlier? There's no more mercy. There's no more long-suffering. There's no more grace. This sea of glass is fixed, and now there is not cleansing. There's only judgment. Man has reached his limit. God's about to pour out his last seven plagues. His final uh, judgment is coming to this earth before the kingdom is set up. And what a horror is coming to those still left on the planet. This is... This is the setting of the jubilation. Now, now, get that. The saints in heaven are looking down at what's coming. They see the, the beasts that are giving the vials to the angels to administer this judgment. And the Bible says they're singing these two songs. That's the setting of this jubilation. It's going to be terrible judgment. The source of the jubilation. Who is it that is singing? Well, the scripture says specifically that they're the tribulation saints that we met back in Revelation chapter 7. Specifically, they're the main singers. I would say maybe you and I might be backup singers. We're in the background doing doo-wop, you know, while the main singers are out front. These are the tribulation saints. They've, they, these, now let me remind you. They're the ones who heard the gospel for the first time in their lives during the tribulation period, and they accepted Christ as Savior. They acknowledged Jesus as the only way to be saved, and there are millions of them. The Bible says there is an innumerable number of people saved during the tribulation period, but most of them have become martyrs for Christ, a result of the Antichrist hunting them down and killing them because he would, they wouldn't submit to his authority. So now they're at home in heaven. They've been saved, they're home safe, they're secure, and they are rejoicing in the victory that they've been giving. And they know no better way than to express that rejoicing than singing. And the Bible says that they're singing there. Isn't that amazing? You talk about two different, two completely different settings. On earth, Everyone, saints and sinners alike, are suffering because of the upheaval going on on the planet. In heaven, there's rejoicing and singing. I want you to remember that heaven is going to be a place of rejoicing and worship and song. I'd get used to worshiping God now if I were you. Participate. When Brother Daniel steps up here to lead us in song, you may not have the best voice in the world, but God's not judging on quality He's judging on heart. And some of the lyrics of the song, even those that we sang this morning, the lyrics of the song are incredible. Unless you're singing out of habit and duty. But when you start singing that, we have a story to tell to the nations, and you get to that chorus where it says, he is going to turn their hearts. That is good news. They're wonderful lyrics. doesn't matter if you can sing out or not. Now, if you can't sing all that well, we're probably not going to put a microphone in your hand and ask you to come up here and sing. 
But sing out there as loud and long as you want to when we're singing together. Heaven is going to be a place of wonderful rejoicing and singing. And then the Bible talks about the song of their jubilation. I should say the songs because it said, do you see that? They're singing two of them. And specifically, they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, the Bible says. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit words it like this. The song of Moses, if you want to read it sometime, is found in Exodus chapter 15. It's called the song of Moses. And they're singing it. Did you know that's the first song mentioned in the Bible? Did you know that the song of the Lamb is the last song that's mentioned in the Bible? They're singing the first song. They're singing the last song. The song of Moses is sung by the children of Israel who have been delivered from Egypt. The song of the Lamb is sung by these saints who've been delivered from the tribulation period and the Antichrist. The song of Moses was sung next to the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung by the Sea of Glass. The song of Moses was to praise God for bringing his people out. The song of the Lamb is sung in praise to God for bringing his people in. Both of them are songs of redemption. Both of them celebrate God's delivering work. Let's just... Let's just go through those verses. Can we do this quickly? Go through those verses and look about. Look at what they're singing about. Just follow down. Verse number three says, they're singing of his works. They are great and marvelous. Also in verse three, it says that his ways are just and true. In verse number four, they are singing of his wonder. He's the only, look at verse four. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only are holy. They're singing of his wonder. They're singing of his worship, which comes in, in verse 4, from all the nations of the world. It says, all the nations of the world are going to worship before you. And they're singing of his wrath, which is made manifest to the world. It's going to be revealed in terrible judgment. These saints, these ones who are singing here, they have been through a terrible time but they found God to be faithful. I can't imagine the suffering they went through in the tribulation period, but they're going to go through it, and they found God faithful. Have you found God faithful? I know some of your families rather well. Some of you have walked through deep, dark valleys, and you found God faithful. And so when certain songs get played, tears will come up in your eyes. When we sing, it is well with my soul, some of you have walked through something like the author of that song did and, and lost family members in tragic deaths, and yet you found God faithful. And so when that song comes up, boy, you can sing that song. You may not be able to sing every song the choir sings, but if somebody stands up here and sings, it is well with my soul, you can sing that. That's what they're doing in Revelation chapter 15. They're singing about the faithfulness of God. They've come through a terrible tribulation. And God has been faithful to them. You know the great thing about heaven? I was kidding some of you a little bit ago. Who My, my dad, my, and my dad's in heaven now, so he can sing a lot better than he used to on earth. My dad couldn't sing that well. My family did. My mom sang, and um, 
she would get us around the piano sometimes, and all eight of us kids sing. We had sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses among our eight kids. And we'd get together, and we'd just sing. Sometimes I remember when we were little, driving in our 1973 or 72 Chevy station wagon to church, we'd be singing in the car. And there'd be some harmony going on and every once in a while. Dad usually didn't sing in that setting. He just kind of drove, kept his eyes on the road. We moved down here to Tennessee when I was 11, and Dad decided to join the choir over at Victory Baptist Church in Maryville. He joined the choir. And as long as he sat by this guy named Tom Orr, who had a beautiful bass voice and a, and a sure bass voice. As long as dad sat by Tom, dad could sing bass. And we were all like, who knew? <laughs> you know. Now, if, if Tom wasn't there, dad struggled a bit, but he'd still sing in the choir. You know, the great thing about heaven is every singer there is going to have perfect pitch, perfect harmony, perfect timing, And we're going to sing perfect songs. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place of jubilation. They're preparing for terrible judgment on earth. And yet in heaven, knowing that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, the saints are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They're rejoicing over this. I love hearing good Christian music today. It will be nothing compared to what we hear and sing along with in heaven. We, that, that, we've been watching John Phillips, you know, on these Wednesday nights. That pastor's conference that we go to, it was fun to go there and just sing on Sunday morning because not only did the church run about eight or 10,000 people, but usually there'd be like two or 3,000 pastors there. And they had a big choir of about 200 or so and an orchestra of about 75 or 100 and that auditorium, when they start singing certain songs, I mean, there are several here that, that went with us. Brother West was there. Dr. Manley went there. Uh, some of you guys went with us. When that music started on Sunday morning, you thought you were pretty close to heaven. I mean, just big, booming, powerful music, and everybody participated. It was just amazing. Nothing compared to what heaven's going to be like. This was not just a vision of judgment. It was a vision of jubilation. There is rejoicing going on in heaven. They're looking at at pending judgment, but they're rejoicing because the judgments of the Lord are true and they're righteous altogether. And finally, the holy God is going to be vindicated for the rebellious nature and sin of mankind. Heaven's rejoicing over that. So there's this vision of judgment. There's a vision a vision of jubilation. And finally, in verses 5 through 8, there's a vision of justice. Perfect justice. The scene changes suddenly. And instead of this huge choir and what's going on, all of a sudden, our attention is shifted to the tabernacle. And when I say the tabernacle, I mean the original tabernacle. Did you know that the tabernacle that Moses built is not the original tabernacle? That was built after the pattern of the tabernacle that was built in heaven. Look at chapter 15 and verse number 5. And after that, watching this huge choir, after that I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled and smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And note this, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The end of verse number eight is very sobering. We'll talk about that in a moment, but let's start with this vision of justice. You're being pointed to the original tabernacle here, the one after which Moses built his. And from this tabernacle in heaven, the Bible says that God's final judgment is issued for the earth. There is, first of all, justice decreed. Justice is decreed in verses 5 and 6. The Bible refers to this tabernacle. It says it like this. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. You're right. The testimony. Do you remember in the Old Testament, sometimes it, it talked about the ark of the testimony. Do you remember what that testimony referred to in the Old Testament? It referred to the law of God. The law of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai that set out God's standard for living. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make unto thee no graven image. And he goes right on down the line. And he sets out God's standard for holy living. He gave that to Moses. Moses was to give it to the people. And what God was doing through all of that is he's revealing his perfectness, his holiness, his righteousness. But the law also reveals man's sinfulness and his inability to keep that law. Here's where God set the standard for holy living and said, this is how I live and this is what I demand. And then man stepped up and tried to do it and couldn't do it at all. And the law shows us our inability to live a perfect life. John sees that going on in heaven. You know what that's saying? That the law is still in force here. Perfection is still God's demand for getting into heaven. Although people have tried to alter God's standards of holiness... Do you remember where God wrote those down for Moses? What did he write that down in? Stone. Our standards of holiness may change. God's doesn't. It stays exactly the same. He still demands perfection for entrance into heaven. How in the world can I get there? We need somebody. We need somebody that can keep every one of those laws And then we can hook up with them. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. God has the standard of perfection demanded for you to get into heaven. You have to be perfect. I have to be perfect to go to heaven. That's what the law demands. The broken law demands judgment. That's Revelation chapter 16. The broken law demands judgment. 
Jesus came and he perfectly fulfilled the law. So now anyone that puts their faith in Jesus Christ are completely forgiven. And instead of God looking at you, if you're saved this morning, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your righteousness or your works. He sees his son's righteousness. You have been, do you remember we did that, uh, we did that uh, uh, series here a while back? A while back on what it means to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. I'd love to have a millionaire's, I'd love to have a millionaire's bank account imputed to me. So that when you look at my checkbook, you don't really see my checkbook, you see their checkbook. But it's credited to my account. That's how the righteousness of Christ works. It's not my righteousness, not by works which we have done. His righteousness Because he perfectly fulfilled the law. You know what? He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. That's two different things. If he abolished the law, then there would be no demand for perfection to get into heaven. He he didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law. In fact, he said he he fulfilled it perfectly. Everything that could be done right according to the law, Jesus did that to the max. He fulfilled the law, making a way for people to trust him. And now I don't have to fulfill the law to get into heaven, but I am expected to live a holy life. That measures up to the law. Am I going to be perfect when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the law? No, but I ought to be striving to fulfill the law. Why else would, would God say, be holy because I'm holy? I'm expected to live differently as a Christian. You ought to live differently as a Christian. Your language should be different. Your lifestyle should be different. Your desire and your passion should be different. Your goals ought to be different. Why? Because you're, you're walking in the righteousness of Christ now. We're not living for this world. These seven angels walk out of this tabernacle that's in heaven, the place where the law is. They come out, and the Bible says they're clothed in pure white linen, and they, are, they have these seven golden girdles around their chests pointing to the majesty of God. The white linen refers to their perfection and the perfection of the one that they're serving. And they walk out, and they, they have these bowls given to them, These bowls of the judgment of God. First, justice is decreed. Second, justice in verses 7, 8 is delivered. Those four beasts that are mentioned there, they're the same ones that are mentioned back in Revelation chapter 4. Same one. One of those beasts come and, and those beasts, their existence is to glorify God. That's what their purpose is. Their purpose is to glorify God. One of them give the angels each a bowl that is Uh, that contains the fullness of God's wrath, it says. I want to pause right there and and say this, because verse number 1 says it, so does verse number 7. The words here about God's wrath are a clear testimony that the plagues that are coming during the tribulation period are the result of God's wrath against sin and against sinners. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is God's full wrath being described. 
His wrath has been building behind the dam of his grace, to use John Phillips' uh, his analogy. His wrath has been building behind the dam of his grace since Eden. Since Adam and Eve first sinned, God's wrath has been building. But now here in Revelation 15, it's come to a full boil and the result is absolute judgment. And the only refuge for anyone is escape through Jesus Christ. Today, or in that day that John's seeing, their only hope is in the Lord. Now the temple here, it talks about that temple in verse number 5, and, and it mentions it even in verse number 8. But in verse number 8, it says that this temple that had been standing open, did you see this? It's now closed. How, how, do, I, how do I deal with verse number 8, the end of this? No one is allowed to enter because it's filled with the glory and the presence of an almighty God who is now acting in full wrath. Do you remember when Jesus died? What what significant thing took place at the temple specifically when Jesus died? You remember that? That veil top to bottom, someone said it was as thick as a man's hand, top to bottom, rent in twain. And it's opened, and now we have access to God. There's the, there's the Ark of the Covenant right there. And the picture is that we have direct access to God. But now the Bible says that once again, this thing has closed. It's full of the power and the presence of a wrath-filled God. And verse 8 says it, no man's able to enter. This is a time of judgment. Terrible judgment God's coming in full he is coming in full wrath too late for grace too late for hope too late for opportunity what John is seeing here is not just a a vision of judgment and of jubilation it's time for justice do you remember that do you, you remember that and I don't know who said it first, which of our favorite preachers said it first. They said, you don't want a fair trial. You don't want a fair trial with God. Listen to me, individual that might be here today wondering if you're saved. You don't want a fair trial with God. Now, if I go to court here, if I go to court here in the United States, I get charged with some crime. I want a fair trial if I'm innocent. I want a fair trial. But if you're going to offer me a free pardon... Not just the fair trial. If you'll give me free pardon, then I'm for that. You know what I want before God? I want a free pardon. Not a fair trial. I don't want God's justice. I want God's mercy. I don't want God's justice. I want his grace. There is a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter number 25, the first 10 verses, and we've come to call that the parable of the ten virgins. These virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And in this parable, each of them have a lamp. And the lamp that they have needs oil in order to burn. The wick uh, soaks up the oil, and they've got to have oil in their lamp for it to give them any light at all. And each of these virgins have a lamp. Five of them are ready. So no matter when this groom comes, they're they're ready for his arrival. Their lamps are full of oil. But five of them, the Bible calls them foolish virgins. 
Five of them made no preparation for the coming of the groom. And so while they go out and try to make preparation for his coming, the groom shows up. And when he shows up, five wise virgins who were ready for his arrival, they're welcomed by the groom. And they're taken away, and the door going into their home is shut. And then here come those, here come those five foolish virgins who made no preparation whatsoever. The point of that whole, the point of that whole parable is opportunity is temporal. It doesn't last forever. That's the point of it. The tragedy of the five foolish virgins is going to be a reality for many people one day. They will have failed to prepare for the coming of the one who has been saying for 2,000 years, I'm coming back. They failed to prepare for it, and he shows up, and the door of opportunity is slammed shut, and they're not getting in. It's the same picture of the ark uh, the ark's door when it closed. There was 120 years to watch that thing being built. I mean, I don't care that it was built out in the middle of nowhere. I don't care that I don't care that it wasn't built in a marina or near a marina. I know the ark was just built out there in the middle of nowhere. But for 120 years, the New Testament tells us that Noah preached about the coming judgment of God. Well, you know, at some point there had to be someone who said what is being said all over this world today. You know, they've been talking about that for a long time. I mean, my dad died hearing Noah talk about the coming judgment of God. My grandfather died. Noah's been saying this for 119 years. Noah's been saying this for 119 years and six months. Noah's been saying this for 119 years, 11 months, and 29 days. And then all of a sudden, raindrops start falling. I don't know when Jesus is coming. I just know he's coming. And that door, friend, is going to close. And once it closes, the opportunity for you to go to heaven is gone. Sam, Pastor, you're trying to scare me. Absolutely right. Jude verse 22 says, Some you save with fear. And if I can scare you with the impending judgment of God, you ought to be scared. Don't let this, don't let this parable of the five virgins, don't let that be or these ten virgins, don't, don't let you be caught in the, in the five foolish virgin crowd. Be ready for Christ to come. Today, God's offering salvation. You know what the call is by Christ today? Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will, let him come. That's the invitation of Scripture today. But there's coming a day when the call from God's throne is going to be, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And when that comes, it's too late. 
This is the preparation for the bold judgments. And the bold judgments, after everything we've studied so far in the first 14 chapters of Revelation, the bold judgments are the worst to come. God's wrath is full. The dam's about to break. I want to encourage you today, if you aren't for a 100% sure that you're saved, get sure. I don't know how to be poetic. I don't know how to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a fine speaker. I love listening to Dr. Phillips. Words flow out of his mouth like a river running downstream. You know, it's just so easy. I don't know how else to say it. Get ready. If you're not saved today, get saved. Adrian Rogers' invitation was always at the end of his service, or at the end of his sermon, his invitation, no matter what he preached, was always, come to Jesus. That's a good invitation today. If you don't know him as Savior, if you are not rock-ribbed sure, 100%, no question, I, no doubt, if you, have, if you have any doubt that you're saved today, get rid of the doubt. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Know Christ. Church, be a good stewardship of the gospel. Be a good steward of the gospel. Share it. It was freely given to you. Freely give it to others. Whether it's a spoken word or you give somebody a track or you leave it at the restaurant, wherever you, whatever you do, share the gospel of Christ. Most people in this world are going to go to hell. They don't have to, but most are going to. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Tell people about Jesus. They need to know. Would you stand with your heads bowed? Father, this is a serious passage of Scripture. It's also interesting that these people are rejoicing in heaven. From their perspective, your judgment is true and righteous, and it's perfect and just. So while we're still on this side of the rapture, it sobers us up, as I think you intended it to. And so for Christians here today, convict us of our lack of urgency in sharing the gospel intentionally with people. Help us to tell people about heaven and about hell. Help us to tell people about Jesus and Calvary. And I pray for People in here today, young or old, that don't know you as Savior or they're not sure of their salvation. Maybe they prayed a prayer when they were a kid, but nothing has really changed in their life. They don't have a passion for you or for your word. They struggle in in some kind of a Christianity that they're not embracing. Maybe they're not saved. Lord, only only you can work in their hearts. Only your Holy Spirit can point out their need for a Savior. Please do that today so that no one in this room dies without Christ. Have your way in every one of our hearts today, I pray in your name. Amen.